this coming Advent season, that God would use us to make his name known. So would you pray with me? Father God, we come before the one who, who declares that he is sovereign over everything in the world. Even over the functions of, of human sin, God, we, we are the ones who have, have sinned and rebelled against you. You make it clear in your word that it is because of our sin that the world in which we live is cursed, it is broken. We do live in a broken world, but it's not been broken by accident. It's been broken by our willful defiance of you, our choice to live for ourselves rather than you, to be our own gods rather than let you be God. And yet, though it was not your plan or your intent, it was not your cause that made us sin, nonetheless, you tell us that you are sovereign even over those curses, over the results of our sin. You are sovereign over uh, disabilities and illnesses. You are sovereign over natural disasters. God, you are sovereign over viral pandemics. And so we come before the God who is sovereign over all, recognizing that that does not in any way make you culpable or guilty for sin. We are guilty for sin, and yet, God, you are also not incapable of handling the sinful world that we have now created, the beautiful world you created, which we have broken. And so, God, as we are suffering the effects felt very acutely of one particular natural disaster, a biological disaster, a viral pandemic that has altered the function of life literally worldwide, and certainly in our own lives, have radically changed. And for quite some time, God, we, we come before you with that. Uh, praying, first of all, God, for an end to the coronavirus. We pray that it would be curtailed. We pray that it would be uh, beaten back, that the glorious bodies you've created within us that have the ability to fight off countless germs with a molecular structure that is unbelievably complex and a cellular structure that boggles our own imaginations with your beautiful creativity. God, would you give us, our society, our world, our bodies, victory over this disease? We pray, great healer, for healing. We pray, Father God, for life in the midst of, until that healing comes, until those vaccines or enough immunity comes that we can, can move on with less fear. God, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we navigate what is becoming very difficult and exhausting times. We pray especially for our governor, Governor Brown, as she continues to make significant decisions based on rapidly changing information in a state of millions of people. Father God, in particular for this uh, two-week freeze, as she has labeled it, that we find ourselves in, which has even further reduced our capacity to gather, and yet we realize that is one of many other different impacts of this. Father, it is so difficult to understand how to effectively balance as human beings all of the needs that are here, and we certainly all have our opinions, but God, at the end of the day, she has to make decisions. We pray for her. We pray that you would give her the insights and the wisdom to make good decisions uh, based not just on limited information, but God, would you give her supernatural wisdom that, that our society, our civilization would thrive as much as is possible even in the midst of this pandemic, balancing all of the needs and the issues. So God, even as we pray for an end to the disease, we pray that you would give our leaders wisdom in guiding us through it. On a more personal note, Father God, I want to be honest about the grief many of us are feeling. And whatever form that takes, whether the grief is anger, uh, whether it is just sort of classic grief, whether it is fear and uncertainty, whether it's, it's grieving maybe how the holidays will look different this year or other relational and financial or other impacts, uh, perhaps somebody that we know has this disease or has recently died from it, it's a very real thing for us. Perhaps it's disrupted our ability to be together as families and friends. God, there are so many things we as people are grieving, we want to acknowledge that. We acknowledge it because, because in your word you tell us very clearly multiple times to pour out our hearts before you, to cast our anxieties upon you because you care for us. And so, God, we believe that that's true. And I pray, Father God, for every grief that we are feeling, may we be honest with you. The doubts, the frustrations, the worries, the fears, the hurts, the griefs. God, to pour that out to you and acknowledge this is where we are and this is what we're feeling. 
And at the same time, you also promise us that having poured out our hearts before you, we can then anchor our souls and our experience in you, the one for whom a viral pandemic is nothing. The one for whom today's troubles are gone in a heartbeat because an entire span of a human life is but a blip on eternity's radar screen. Oh God, I pray that we would find great peace even in the midst of grieving because we have poured out our hearts before you and because you have then reset our expectations and our hopes and you have assured us of your love and met us where we need to be met. God, meet each man and woman today where we need to be met as we pour out our hearts before you. We pray that you would accomplish your purposes to mature us and to save those who do not know you as a result of the pain that we are feeling. May more and more people reach out to you and may we, your people, be faithful to not be so self-absorbed that we only point them to ourselves, but that we can point them to you as we process our own griefs and fears with you. Lastly, Jesus, I pray this morning for our Advent offerings coming up this next month. God, as we think about a Christmas season that will look and feel different, we have sought to make Christmas different with some real success these last several years, raising as a church over $85,000 in the last four years for global missions work and local care for people. God, we look forward to adding to that total this year. I pray that you would move the hearts of your people to give because we're a mission-focused people and we see the opportunity to pursue the lost right here in our own community and all around the globe. God, I pray that we, the members of this church, would be a beacon of your Holy Spirit's love for the world, holding Jesus up, holding the gospel up in word and in action so that people can see you People who perhaps were far too busy and far too comfortable before to ever give you a single thought. God, may thousands of them in our community now give you great thought. And I pray that they would see you expressed clearly as we give to the ministry of Jim, as we give to the ministry of Love, Inc. here closer to home. God, would you bless these ministry partners? Would you bless gospel work in and through them and in and through us? So sovereign God, who controls every disaster, who controls human history, and who is not thwarted by any such thing. Would you accomplish your purposes in us now, even as we turn our attention to your word? Take us, change us, use us, shape us for our good and for your eternal glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for praying with me together, church. It is so important that we pray with one another. It's one of the things we're actually going to see this morning. As we begin a a new sermon series this morning, we've had several weeks now where we've done um, what we do periodically, but it's not our norm, and that is preach what we call topical sermon series. We'll look at a subject, and we'll open up the Bible and seek to understand that subject a little bit better. Uh, We do that in between kind of our normal series. And about a month ago, we went through a four-part series talking about our mission as a church, especially our mission in this crazy COVID time period. And we talked about, you know, all of it comes down to really four things that we just want to constantly keep in front of ourselves. Pursuing God, pursuing the church gathered, pursuing one another as members of this church, and then pursuing the lost. You know, learn together to live like Jesus to reach our world. And that's how we're doing that in this time period. And then we spent uh, four Sundays where we also learned some, some lessons, particularly from the Old Testament, the, uh, sorry, the New Testament's, the, the Bible's final book, the New Testament's final book of Revelation, lessons that guide us on how to pursue that. So we saw four key lessons for being the people of God in trying times. I hope and I trust that those scripture passages and the work of the Spirit fed our souls and helped shape our thinking. Uh, It's now a joy to kind of come back to what we normally do, which is to begin with a book of scripture and go from start to finish throughout that book and simply seek to follow God's flow of thought in a book of the Bible as he has laid it out for us. And we're going to do that over these next number of months together through the New Testament book of Acts. So if you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to open up to the New Testament book of Acts. It's the fifth book in the Bible, the first one after the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I just said the fifth book in the Bible, didn't I? Fifth book in the New Testament, sorry, uh, after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to look at all of chapter one this morning, which is a, a decent chunk of scripture, and there's, there's some good uh, to doing that. 
in the process of doing that, of, of taking a whole chunk of Scripture like a chapter, we kind of see the forest rather than the trees. Uh, Acts has many chapters in it. It is a, a record, it's a, a history, it's a narrative of how the first church in history started and how churches then spread throughout the first century Roman Empire in the immediate aftermath of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension back to heaven. The reason to study a book like Acts is because it tells us as a church who we really are. And I trust that these will be lessons that re-energize us and refocus us as a church at a time where so much of the way we normally function is either being suspended or altered. We still are who we are. We are still called to be who we're called to be. And God is here to lead us in that and through that process. That's what we're going to see as we look in this book. I want to read the first, um, maybe about 40% of it. We're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 11, and then we'll pick up the second half um, just a little bit later. Let me read uninterrupted, and then we'll see what this book has for us. Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into the heavens as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking off into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. This is God's word for us this morning. In these first couple paragraphs, we get the introduction to the book of Acts. And and you find out right away from the very first words that it is actually uh, not a separate book of the Bible. It's actually volume two of a two-volume, a two-part work. Uh, The very first words of the book. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have already dealt with, and so on and so forth it goes. There was a first book, and Acts is now the second book. Uh, Some of you may be aware that that the two-volume set of which Acts is the second half was written by a well-known follower of Jesus named Luke. Volume 1 was the Gospel of Luke. So Luke recorded both. He did all of his painstaking research. He was a traveling partner with the Apostle Paul. He took place personally in many of the events that the book of Acts records. And in the midst of all of his research, he sets forth an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and then what happened with the movement of Jesus after his ascension into heaven, which is the book of Acts. Now the question becomes, just by way of introduction, like why write all this down? Is this just history? (laughs) What's the point of writing this down? After all, there were other gospel writers, Matthew and Mark and John. There were many other people who had followed Jesus and were teaching about him. Why did Luke set out to write the account that he wrote? Which is a good question because if we know why he wrote to his original audience, we have a pretty good idea of what God wants us to take away from this writing as modern readers today. So what was Luke's point? Fortunately, we're not left to guess. If I turn briefly back to Luke chapter 1, the beginning of the entire two-volume set, Luke does us a favor. He just flat out tells us right at the beginning 
why he's writing, and what he hopes the impact of his gospel and the book of Acts is on the Christians who read it. Let me just read briefly from Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that, here it is, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught." Luke writes the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts so that Christians would have certainty concerning the things that they were taught. That's the purpose, that's the reason. That's what he wants us to take away from reading this. We're supposed to take away certainty. Uh, Clearly, there was a guy by the name of Theophilus, good Greek name back in the first century, who was the original sort of uh, motivation for Luke to sit down and write this. But these writings were widely circulated around the first century church as faithful records of Jesus' life and teachings and the teachings of the original church. And he writes for Theophilus, clearly a man who had already become a Christian, this orderly and accurate account of Jesus' ministry and the launch of the church in order to give him certainty. Certainty about what? As the story unfolds, it becomes evident that he's really talking about certainty regarding a couple of things. First of all, he wants his original readers, and therefore I believe it's appropriate to still say God's purposes for us as Christian readers of these books today, is that we would have certainty regarding the gospel, and secondly, certainty regarding our mission as a gospel people. Certainty about the gospel is the work of both books. Certainly the book of Luke records the life and the ministry of Jesus, everything that he taught and how he came to live for us the righteous life that we could never live on our own. How, how no man, no person could be righteous enough to earn their way into heaven because we're too sinful and so God had to become man in Jesus Christ. That's the story of Christmas. That God finally invaded human history by becoming a man in Jesus to live a man's life, but to do it in perfect righteousness, which we could never do. He lived that righteous life for us. And then he died a sinner's death for us, a death that we all deserve, but no longer have to face. The wages, the Bible tells us, of sin is death And Jesus Christ came to die in our place. So he lived the righteous life for us. We could never live so that we could be considered righteous before God. He died the sinner's death for us that we should have died so that our debt could be paid and our slate could be wiped clean. And then glory of glories, he miraculously rose from the dead, conquering death itself by the power of God. That is the good news of the gospel. And Luke writes so that we will have certainty of that. He, he writes out carefully the record of what took place. Because brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, your faith is rooted in the gospel and the gospel alone. It is essential to get this right. Not as a math test kind of way, but as the understanding of what am I trusting in? Am I trusting in Christ's righteous life for me and his death in my place? Only because he rose from the dead and conquered death can I look forward to eternity in heaven. He wants his readers to be clear and certain about the gospel, that Jesus' tomb really was empty on that third day and that he really walked around for 40 days talking to his disciples after he had died. They saw him alive, they touched him, they hugged him, he taught them and then he left. And they had a future to look forward to of being with him. Now, he also wants them to be certain about their mission. Certain not only about the gospel, but certain about what their mission was as a gospel people. Okay, now that I've banked my own life on Jesus, now what? Do I just hang on until Jesus comes back and takes me to heaven? Why didn't you just take me now? (laughs) Some days that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But he hasn't. He's left us here. He's left us here with a purpose and a plan. What is that purpose? And what is that plan? What is our mission now that we as Christians are a gospel people? We're back in the book of Acts, chapter 1. 
Uh, Verse 4 says that Jesus stayed with them for 40 days between his resurrection and then his return to heaven. And he was teaching them, I'm sorry, verse 3, he was teaching them and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus gave them some final marching orders and the last things that he told his disciples had to do with the kingdom of God before he left to heaven. And what this means is that, that Jesus' coming was not a random or isolated event. God didn't just show up one day out of the blue and say, I don't know what I'm going to do next. Maybe I'll go down there and be a human and die for them. That's a good idea. Let's try that. Like, it's not some random thing. The coming advent of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, were all the culmination of a grand plan of God's kingdom returning to the earth that God set in motion from eternity past. Jesus' coming is a part of history's ultimate story. His work, life and death, fixes our sin, which is ultimately what's broken with the world. We've already said that. But what that means is that he is the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior that the Old Testament promised would come someday. And he accomplished God's purpose to redeem a sinful world, that is to buy it back for God. In Jesus, God's kingdom invades this rebel earth which has rebelled against his kingdom and he invades this domain to reestablish his dominion and to reestablish us, not as rebels, but as his servants, as his children, as his worshipers. This is the mission. This is what human history is all about. And Jesus wants his guys and gals, his people, to understand before he leaves, guys, that's the mission I'm sending you on. You're going to now continue this work, empowered by my spirit, to the ends of the earth. So by reading the book of Acts, we become clear on the gospel, which is recounted in a beautiful detail multiple times, especially in the first half of the book. And secondly, we learn about our mission as a gospel people. So if that's the case, if Jesus walked around for 40 days and told them, get about the mission, what do we do now? How do we get about the mission? Well, that's where the book of Acts picks up the story. That's what we're going to see together for the next number of Sundays. Now, it's interesting that right away, beginning in verse 4, the story takes what for the disciples of Jesus, was an unexpected twist. It takes an unexpected twist. Uh, Starting in verse 4, Jesus tells them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is really interesting. Jesus tells them after all of this amazing reality, they saw him die, they've seen him rise from the dead, They're walking around with him. This is all miraculous. They're overwhelmed by it all. And what's his message? His message is, go and wait. Go and wait. Go and wait. Wait Wait, wait for what? Go and wait. We got to go get about the business of, of, of God, right? His message was not, now I'm taken over. His message was, go and wait. Now, here's the interesting thing. This, this must have been jarring to those original disciples because, you see, they were living out a story that they thought was the right one. The story that they were living out went something like this. The long-promised Messiah, our Savior, would come and would conquer sin and death. He would defeat all the evil in the world. And he would then usher in the peace and the prosperity of his kingdom for his people to enjoy. And they didn't come up with this story out of nowhere. Like they were reading Isaiah. They were reading the Old Testament prophets. This story that they thought they were living out comes from the Bible. And so when Jesus came along and like he was originally healing people and turning water into wine and walking on water and doing all these crazy miracles, they're like, wow, we really believe you're the son of God. We believe you're the Messiah. So you're now going to restore the kingdom, right? And that didn't happen. Jesus' defeat at the hands of Rome on the cross was utterly devastating. Not only for its grotesque violence, 
not only for the personal relational connections that they had with him as a friend and a brother and a son to watch him suffer and die, but for the death of their hopes and their dreams. They thought he was going to restore peace and, and conquer the evil empire, and the evil empire conquers him and kills him. But then he rises from the dead. Nobody saw that one coming. Even though Jesus told them that's what was going to happen, they didn't see that one coming. And then they're seeing him walk around alive after he was dead, and now their minds are double-blown. Wait a minute, all hope isn't lost. In fact, there's more power going on here than we even imagined. This is sweet. If he can conquer death, he can conquer Rome. Rome looks so big and so powerful to us, but man, anybody who can conquer death, man, you can take care of it. And so they ask him in verse 5, when they, uh, sorry, verse 6, when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, they were talking about their own story, which they thought was his story. Okay, now you're going to conquer, right? Now you're going to fix the world that we so hate to live in because it is so sinful, it's so evil, it's so broken. We so long for you to fix the world surely now you're going to do it, right? You're going to give these Old Testament promises to us, your people, Israel. That's what they were expecting. That's what they thought was going to happen. The story they were living, they thought was the right story. After all, it had come from the Bible. How could they be wrong? Jesus' words, go and wait, I'm sure is the last thing that they were expecting. You see, what's happening in this introduction to volume two, to the book of Acts, is that Jesus' followers, having now come to grips with his resurrection, are nonetheless being told by him, guys, you're not actually living quite the right story. Your character's in the story, but you're in the wrong one. You've got to get on to the right story. This is going to go down differently than you think. His message was not, now I'm going to take over. His message was, go and wait Go and wait for what? How is this going to play out if it's not going to play out the way we thought? Well, as verse 8 summarizes, and as the book of Acts demonstrates, this is the story. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is probably the, the central summarizing verse of the entire book. Like, this is the message. <laughs> Will you now restore the kingdom? He said to them, verse 7, it's not for you to know the times and seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. Guys, don't worry about all that. Here's what you focus on, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In a nutshell, the mission, the story, is Holy Spirit-empowered witness to everyone. That's how this is going to go down. Jesus tells them. Holy Spirit empowered witness to everyone. Uh, by saying, be my witnesses, what he's saying is, guys, God's kingdom is not going to spread by me taking over, even though I've demonstrated supernatural power, and I could. It's not going to come from me seizing the levers of human government deposing dictators and installing righteous people, winning elections, passing the right laws, taking over Rome and ensuring that all of the political system is submitted to me. That's what they were probably expecting. That's not at all what he said. That's not how the kingdom is going to spread. God's kingdom invading the world spreads as he transforms the hearts of people through the grace, the truth, the beauty, and the love of the gospel. That's how his kingdom spreads. One human heart at a time, bowing from deep within where I used to rebel and saying, Jesus, you're beautiful where I used to think you were ugly. Looking at worship and service of God as freedom when I used to think it was bondage. Living for God rather than myself and coming to love that. That's a heart transformation. God says that the root of this whole problem was that human hearts turned away from me. The only way we're going to fix it is to turn human hearts back. So guys, how does that happen? It happens only through the gospel. That's why it's so important, as we said earlier, to get the gospel right. 
to be assured of it and to be clear about it because it is only when we recognize and embrace from our hearts that Christ has done for me what I could not do for myself and I embrace that and acknowledge it am I suddenly now on the road to life because of his work, not mine. Since that's changed your life, Jesus says, you now send that message to everybody else. Be my witnesses. That's kind of a quasi-legal term there. He just means, it's just like a witness in a witness stand, you know, in a court case. Describe what happened. Describe what you saw. Describe what you experienced. This is how the kingdom is going to grow. You are going to go describe to people who I am, the gospel, and how I've changed your life so that they will know how I can change theirs too. Speaking and showing Jesus is how the world will change. But notice also, he doesn't just say, you will be my witnesses. He says the first thing is, wait because you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The official formal title of the book of Acts, we call it Acts just for short. The, the full title is the Acts of the Apostles. That's written in most of your New Testaments. Many theologians have pointed out that the book, which was named by humans, by the way, that's just a title people have invented, the book would probably be better titled The Acts of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit plays a prominent role in the spread of the gospel throughout this book. Speaking and showing Jesus always involves Christians, but it never depends wholly upon Christians. That's the message. It always involves Christians, but it never depends wholly upon Christians. The Holy Spirit of God makes the truth plausible and beautiful to a human heart as he brings about the gift of repentance and faith. It is not up to you or I to convince anyone about Jesus or to convince them to change their life. We don't have the power. But I know a guy who does. It's up to us to speak and to show Jesus and then pray that God would transform them. That's, as we will see throughout this book, what church communities are all about. We covenant together to live out the gospel, which is changing us as individuals. It then manifests itself within a church community, and that itself is a witness to a watching world. By this, Jesus told his disciples, all men will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. It's a supernatural love that only I can work in your hearts and when it comes about in a church community, the gospel goes forward. The church is essential to that task, but it is not the church's job to change people. That is the work the Holy Spirit does. So, spirit-empowered witness and lastly, to everyone. From Jerusalem, the city they were in, to Judea, the surrounding community, to Samaria, that other land right next door that has people who are ethnically different from you and you kind of look down on them and they look down on you and you don't even really like those people very much. Well, guess what? They're as much as part of God's plan as you are. (laughs) In fact, he finally says, to the ends of the earth. This is a worldwide story. It's not just for Israel, for the Old Testament ethnic people of God. God wants to redeem the most loathsome, the most different, and the most difficult person for you to love. Picture that. Who is that? Is it a Republican? Or a Democrat? Is it this kind of person, that kind of person? Whomever they are, Jesus says, I have died to redeem them. That is the mission I send you out on, church. Spirit-empowered witness to everyone. Friends, let me just pause here and ask, what story am I living out? What story am I living out? These disciples were following Jesus, firsthand witnesses to miracles, the likes of which boggle the mind, and they thought they had the right story, but Jesus is having to correct them before he leaves. He says, no, this is about the kingdom of God, and that's going down different than you think. It's not about me taking over. It's about go and wait for spirit-powered witness. What do our hearts tell us we're pursuing? Think about this latest presidential election. We all have thoughts and opinions about it. Some of us are sick of thoughts and opinions about it. Are you either devastated or elated at the results? It's okay to be discouraged or to be happy. It's okay to disagree or agree. Is my heart set on seeing my culture my political system go a particular way? Is that where my heart is invested? 
Another diagnostic question. What do you most yearn for right now? If we're honest, what's the one thing that we're just like, oh, if only? Is it an end to the pandemic? Getting back to normal life, whatever that means? Is it the restoration of a relationship? There's so many things, many of which are good things to yearn for. Is my heart based on them? Brothers and sisters, if my heart breaks more over the direction of my country, for example, than it does over the salvation of my neighbor, that may be a good point for prayer. And I'll be honest, that's a prayer I need to pray many times. God, am I about your story? Or am I about a different one? Maybe even in your name. This brief exchange between Jesus and the disciples illustrates how easy it is to think we're living out the right story when we may not be. He tells us the story, spirit-empowered witness through the church to everyone. Well, in the time we have left, I want to look at the rest of chapter 1, which is intriguing. It intrigues me because I find it unexpected and surprising. The rest of chapter 1, which is even longer than what we've seen so far. Here we've had 11 verses. We now have another 15 or so. More than half of the chapter is devoted to what seems to be a very simple and basic procedural decision that the disciples made. That is, they had been 12. Judas Iscariot, of course, betrayed Jesus and killed himself. Now they are 11, and they come to the conclusion that they need to replace Judas. And Luke spends a half a chapter explaining this. I wonder why. Let's read it and see what we can find out. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. And then we get the list of the 11 so that we can count. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. Not that Judas, the other Judas, okay? All of these were, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, Luke notes, as a a parenthetical note, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Luke was a doctor, so he's probably a little bit more comfortable with biological stuff than some of us are. So sorry about the graphic detail there, okay? But the point is Judas died pretty unpleasantly. It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Okay, now he continues with the narrative. This is Peter again talking. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And, quoting another psalm, let another take his office. Verse 21. So, one of the men who accompanied us, Peter still talking, During all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. They put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. They prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. That's God's word for us. Why? <laughs> Seriously, I, okay, interesting. Fifteen verses, was that really important? I thought we were waiting for the Holy Spirit. Where is that? Oh, that's in chapter two. We'll get that next Sunday. (laughs) All that cool Holy Spirit stuff starts next chapter. Why 15 verses on replacing Judas as an apostle? 
Ultimately, whatever the reasons, I want to suggest that we're seeing here a picture of how the very first community of 120 people that would become the very first Christian church in history quite soon, how they constituted themselves together as a family and what they were doing even as they were waiting. You see, Jesus said, go and wait, and so they did. But it turns out that while they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, whatever that was going to mean, they weren't sure at the time. But their waiting was not merely passive. It's not like, okay, um, you know, pull out the phone, watch TikTok videos. I don't know, like we're just waiting around until this Holy Spirit thing happens, whatever that's going to be, and then we'll get about. They were waiting, but it was an active waiting. There's at least four things that stand out to me as I read through this text that, that characterize their waiting. And there may be lessons for us as a church community, good examples to follow. So in the time we have left, let's briefly look at four aspects of how they waited for God before they got about his business. Four characteristics of their active waiting. First of all, notice that they were together. They were together, both physically and you might say missionally. Basically, here's what I mean. Physically together is obvious, right? They, they were meeting together as regularly as possible. We're not told exactly how, how often, but it was really clear that Jesus didn't like go away and then three hours later the Holy Spirit came. There was some time there in which they were discussing, they were praying, they were searching the scriptures. We'll talk about those things in a second. But they were together. They were, they were spending time meeting together. They could have all scattered and gone off to their own homes and said, fine, we'll just hang out till this Holy Spirit thing happens and we'll get back together and figure it out from there. That's not what they were doing. They were meeting Together, they recognized their need to be gathered in person as a group, as a family of followers of Jesus. Whatever's happening, we're in it together. So we need to be together to share our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions and our experiences and our understandings together so that it's not just a bunch of individual men and women following Jesus. It is a family Gathering in person matters to our souls and it matters to us as groups, whether that group is a family or whether it's a church. Gathering deepens relationship and it promotes unity, which is why Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 is in the Bible. You know, the verse that tells Christians, it commands us, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some but encourage one another all the more. The Bible seems to think you need to be together in order to effectively encourage one another as we engage in this long, hard road of following Christ. That's one of the things that is so bizarre and pernicious about this pandemic. Because when a contagious disease spreads worldwide, it automatically makes us think, hey, <laughs> out of protecting myself and love for neighbor, like I shouldn't be near them, which is weird because that's totally contrary to our normal instinct and the normal pattern that the Bible is teaching. You actually want to get near people when you love them. The closer you get to them, the more you love them. The more you love them, you get closer to them. You spend more time. And all of a sudden, this pandemic is almost pitting our physical health against our mental, emotional, and spiritual health in ways that absolutely scramble the brain. And I will be honest, I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> Why am I bringing this up now? Well, partly because it's here in the Bible. <laughs> but how does it apply to us now? at a time where we're being told, man, for at least a while, we've got to resist gathering in large numbers. And God, as the old Puritans would have said it, has uh, allowed a providential hindrance to come on the normal functions of church. That happens sometimes, right? Several years ago, a big hurricane hits the island of Haiti. They're devastated. Do you think they're having regular church services? I mean, no, it's just devastated, right? And so we naturally raise money and we send teams and we try to help them rebuild and they try to gather as much as they can. But, but when that, something like that happens, you can't just go on with normal life. You have to rebuild. And so that's kind of what theologians used to call a providential hindrance. Well, that's clearly what's taking place for a time. We are providentially hindered from gathering the whole church together in one place. I believe God has purposes in that. I don't know what they all are, but here's one thing I'm hoping and praying for. And I would encourage all the members of this church to think deeply on 
and to pray about. I'm praying that the importance of pursuing the church gathered and the importance of pursuing one another is ramped way up in our minds so that when this pandemic is over, whatever that means and whenever that will happen, it will happen someday. When it's over, we as a people will be more committed to gathering large and gathering small than ever before. It's no secret to most of us that we live in modern America in a very consumer-driven society. Churches, sometimes deliberately, sometimes unwittingly, set themselves up to cater to the needs and appeal to people. We can fall into this pattern so easily of attending churches rather than belonging to them, going to churches rather than joining them, receiving from churches rather than locking arms with brothers and sisters in Christ in a covenant community that's about Jesus, not about us. And the whole time we don't know we're doing anything wrong because nobody's told us we are. Maybe we're living out a different story. I am praying that as all of us are now feeling the ache in one way or another, almost all of us are feeling the need to be together. That need is real. You're not crazy for feeling it. We all need it. I'm praying that the importance of being the church gathered will ramp up in our minds and that that would just characterize us when it's just as convenient to not be here on a given Sunday. Meanwhile, we pray for an end to the pandemic, and we continue to press on through our Zoom fatigue and our frustrations to connect as best we can with one another. They were together physically. Secondly, they were together missionally. <laughs> what I mean by that, you notice in verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to, and then it goes, with, with one accord. That's the idea of um, like, like peace accords. It's an agreement, right? They were unified. That's the idea. Uh, this group of 120 people, which would soon become the first church, was a group of people who were committed to pursuing Jesus together. And that's what a church is. It's it's becoming, as, as we've had members join the church, it's saying, I'm a part of this body. I'm going to pursue Jesus together with this group, not that one or that one or that one. Those are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's great. But God wants us all to be part of a local church. I'm part of this one, and we're going to pursue Christ together. That's what these people were doing. You see, they're, they're unified. I'm part of us, it says. Let's follow Jesus together. Which is an important clarification because in the Bible, this idea of unity, which the Bible talks about quite a bit, it really doesn't have much to do with like everybody thinking the same way. That's not really what unity means, you know? Everybody agreeing on the same things. Everybody liking the same things. Everybody having the same um, entertainment opinions and political opinions and any other opinions. It's not really about everybody coming from similar ethnic backgrounds or similar outlooks on life and worldviews. Unity in a local church is not about everybody kind of becoming monolithic and learning to speak the right language and say the right things the right way. Rather, unity is an incredibly diverse group of people who look and think and function very differently in many ways, moving in the same direction together. That's what these 120 people were doing. They were men, they were women, they were different economic backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, but they were moving together in pursuit of Jesus. That's what unified them. We're going to wait for the Holy Spirit, whatever that means, and we're going to get after the business of witness. The first thing to notice about how they actively waited is that they were intentionally together in whatever ways they could be. Churches today, likewise, need to be together physically as much as we safely can and together missionally. Secondly, what were they pursuing together? Well, they prayed. I stopped reading verse 14 there, but that's what it says. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Devotion is a strong word. We're going to see it a couple of times here in the early chapters of the book of Acts. It's like, it's not just that they prayed. It isn't even just that they kind of prayed a fair bit. It's like they were devoted to this. If nothing else happens, man, we're going to pray today. When we come together, what do we do? We pray. That was, that was the idea. In other words, their waiting was not passive. They actively came together to ask God for his wisdom, to talk with him, to worship with him, to worship him, to speak with him. 
at a time when they weren't exactly sure when the Holy Spirit would come or, or what would happen when he did, they prayed together. And it's not hard to see how good an idea this is for us. In our current moment of exhaustion with it all, brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to pray together. I was so encouraged to to hear of, of women in our church this past week that are meeting even on Zoom to pray together for some of our missionaries. How incredible that is. May their tribe increase. We need to be together in prayer. Prayer that God would keep us in the right story, empower us to faithfully endure in that journey. Thirdly, They were intentionally together using Scripture to understand their situation. They were using Scripture to try to make sense out of their situation. This is an interesting point. I mean, starting in verse 15, all the way down to verse 22, Peter stands up and he's like, guys, okay, we all know that there was a share in this ministry. That's the language that he uses, which is an interesting phrase, that Judas had and he's left and now we've got to replace him. And he quotes a couple of Psalms to say, hey, this is our sense of what we're supposed to do. Now, where is this coming from? And here's an interesting question. I don't know if you've read the book of Acts before and if you've ever thought this. Why did they even think Judas had a position that they needed to replace? Like, why did they even think that? Jesus didn't tell them to replace Judas. Certainly, he he wasn't recorded as saying that. And if he had, Peter probably wouldn't have referred back to the Psalms. He probably would have said, Jesus told us to do this, so let's do it. So in all likelihood, Jesus never explicitly told them to replace Judas. Yet as they're waiting for the Holy Spirit, they're praying and they're searching Scripture, and they felt like this was something they needed to do. Why? Well, because Jesus had already taught them before the significance of what he was doing in light of the Bible's larger story. They were well instructed in the Bible. They, they knew that Jesus had deliberately chosen 12 disciples. That number was very strategic on his part. It was to reflect the 12 tribes of Old Testament Israel. Because you see, in the church, Jesus was launching a true and greater people of God, the true Israel, as the Apostle Paul would later call it, to bring his plan to fulfillment. And so they knew that there was a significance of having 12 apostles because it reflected the heart of what Jesus was doing through God's larger story. And so they go back and they read the Psalms through the lens of the promised Messiah. And they took direction from that. And the point is that they brought order from the chaos of their world by reading scripture, comparing it with one another and with what they knew from Jesus and saying, this is what we think we need to do. Our task as a church is not to fundamentally win the culture war. As much as my heart grieves over many of the things that take place in our culture. Our task as a church is not fundamentally to reshape our government. Our task as a church is not to achieve middle class success. Rather, we are Christ's family called to witness together to the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. To everyone. To everyone. And a pandemic can't stop that. Now, a pandemic can wear us out and discourage us. And I just want to be totally transparent. The last couple weeks have been rough for me. I'm a pretty emotionally stable guy, but I think it's finally catching up to me. Just ask my wife. I've had some real pour-out heart conversations where, like, I'm not in a good place, and she's had to, like, talk me off the ledge. Thank God for her. A pandemic can wear us out and discourage us, but it can't wear God out or discourage him. Are you kidding me? Psalm 2, the Lord sits on his throne, and he laughs at powers that seem so great to us. An election cannot thwart or enable the spread and the accomplishment of God's purposes. An election can alternatively elate or demoralize us, but not God. Why do the nations rage, Psalm 2, against the Lord and his anointed? The Lord laughs. I pray that we'll engage with this book of Acts and that through it, God will frame our understanding of who we are, what we're about, and what we're to go do. I need that. I want to invite you on that journey with me. They, they used scripture to frame their understanding of who they were. Lastly, they acted. 
Not like a play. I mean, like, they chose to act. They chose to act. Really interesting thing to do when you're waiting, right? Waiting sounds passive, and yet this chapter is all about them making a decision, installing somebody into an office, moving forward. Now, in their case, the action was to make a decision. Who would take Judas Iscariot's place as the 12th apostle? They nominated two, they prayed for God's guidance, and then they cast lots and they chose. While they're waiting, they're praying together, reading scripture, and they're moving and pursuing God. They're not getting out ahead of God. They're not like, forget this Holy Spirit, he's taking too long, we're going to go do this on our own. But they're also not on the opposite extreme, we're just passive, and then we're just kind of sitting here and, and, you know, watching Netflix and waiting for the Holy Spirit to show up and not doing anything, right? While they're waiting, they're together saying, God, what do you have for us? And we're going to pursue it to the best of our knowledge and ability. And that's what's happening here. By the way, this whole idea of casting lots, which is more or less like flipping a coin, you know, or rolling dice <laughs> to, to choose an apostle, strikes us as really bizarre. Like, really? Lord's will. Heads, I'll buy the house. Tails, I won't. You know? Heads, I'll ask her to marry me. Tails, I won't. Really? Is that how you find God's will? And it sort of seems like that's what they're doing here because that's kind of what they're doing here. So it seems really weird to us. Just a quick note. It was much more sane and rational in an Old Testament context than it appears uh, to us. It was actually an Old Testament sanctioned way to discern God's will. So they're not just coming up with this out of their culture or out of their own heads. Um, not only um, did the, uh, in the uh, first five books of the Bible, in the Pentateuch, book of Deuteronomy, the um, garment that the high priest wore, actually the book of Exodus is where it's first described, uh, he had a breastplate on that, among other things, contained what were called the Urim and the Thummim, which are two little objects that are never described. We're not actually quite sure what they were, but they were effectively casting lots. The priest would carry these around, and God said, like, when there's a big decision to be made, you consult the Urim and the Thummim. Like, I will lead through that decision-making uh, process. And so then later, Proverbs 16.33 says, you know, the lot is cast into the lap, and yet it's every decision is from the Lord. So there was this Old Testament established procedure from God to say, when my Old Covenant people need to discern my will, they pray, and then they cast lots or something like that. So that's why they were doing what they were doing. It's worth noting that the Holy Spirit had not come yet. That's next chapter. That's about to happen. And after the Holy Spirit does come, you don't see God's people casting lots anymore. Rather, they're seeking God's will by praying and following the lead of the Holy Spirit. So we'll cover all that when we get there. But here's the point. Here's the point of all this. When you step back and look at this section, they came together. They searched the scripture to inform their sense of what to do. They prayed for God's guidance in doing it. And then they did it. And they assumed that that was God's will. They chose to believe that he's going to lead us if we follow him. Friends, what is your next step in faithfully following God? Maybe you've got questions about who God is and you're like, I've always put that off. Maybe I feel awkward or uncomfortable talking to somebody about a relationship with Jesus or whatever that even means. Maybe your next step is to say, hey, I just need to call and talk to one of the pastors or the elders of this church and just ask some questions. Maybe another Christian friend that I know and feel personally comfortable with and just say like, open up the Bible, help me understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If that's your next step, can I encourage you to take it? Maybe it's to pursue God. Maybe your next step is some form of pursuing one another, reaching out to people. Maybe you're tired, maybe you're exhausted of trying to connect, but you know there's somebody you need to reach out to. Maybe your next step is to pray for somebody in your sphere of influence who doesn't know Jesus. What would it look like to come together with the family of God, search the scriptures, pray, and then act? As we as a church wait on God to tell us what to do in the midst of this crazy chaotic world to advance the mission he's put us on, which will not be stopped. Because at the end of the day, in a confusing and hostile world, as Christians, we need to make sure we're living in the right story. Let me pray for us and ask the music team to come back up and close our service with song. God, as you led these people, Jesus telling them to wait in anticipation of your Holy Spirit coming, and we see even in their pre-Holy Spirit waiting, a beautiful example of, of active waiting, I pray, Father God, that you would lead us as a church to actively wait on you, 
to trust you for who you are and what you've called us to be, what you intend for us to be. Father God, I pray for every heart that is heavy this morning in the midst of our church. I pray that you would uh, strengthen those weak knees, as you poetically put it in Scripture, that you would encourage those faint hearts, that you would help us to be a breath of, of, of fellowship, that we're in it together to one another. That as we pray for you, God, that we would be so encouraged to see you showing up and moving in our midst. Help us to believe that you are continuing to pursue your purpose and to simply take our next step in that. Father, may technological challenges and hiccups not stop the gospel. May your word having gone out now accomplish the purposes for which you intended to accomplish and not come back to you void. These things we ask as we seek to sing and praise your name. In Christ's name, amen.